Welcome to the Pathologist Cut Podcast. This RCPA podcast explores the broad medical specialty of pathology and the critical role pathologists play in medicine and healthcare. Hello and welcome to the RCPA's Pathologist Cut Podcast series. Today we're talking to Professor Miles Prince about CAR T cell therapy, a new complex and specialist treatment which is being used to cure certain types of blood cancers. Earlier this year, the TGA approved CAR T cell therapy to treat multiple myeloma following a campaign from Professor Prince to make the treatment, which he refers to as the holy grail of cancer cures, available to all Australians. Professor Prince is an internationally recognised haematologist and professor at both Melbourne and Monash, Monash universities. He's engaged in research into stem cells and the mechanisms of the immune system's control of blood and cancer growth. His research focuses on targeted treatments for blood diseases, including CAR T cell therapy. Thanks for joining us today, Miles. Thanks very much, Laurie. Looking forward to the chat. Miles, CAR T cell therapy seems an extraordinary advance in the treatment of multiple myeloma and cancers in general. It's been said that many cancers through therapies such as this will be curable within a matter of years. Perhaps you can start by explaining what CAR T cell therapy is. Sure. So CAR T stands for chimeric antigen receptor T cells. And fundamentally, what happens is that it is modifying the patient's own T cells to be specifically directed towards the tumour of choice. So practically speaking, patients have their cells apheresed, like standard apheresis. T cells are purified. Usually there's predominantly CD4, CD8 population. The cells are then mixed in a cocktail of cytokines which activate the T cells. And during that process, they're retrovirally transduced with a, an empty vector that contains the gene for the chimeric receptor. So for example, it can be a lentivirus that contains the gene for uh, CD19, or in this case of myeloma, BCMA. And that gene is then incorporated the culture process varies from seven to 12 days. And that's important because the T cells that are cultured during that time need to have a phenotype that is long living. And, and it's, an, it's something we can talk about, but it's actually quite an interesting technique because you can modify the conditions to make different types of T cells, ones that are cytotoxic and immediate killers or ones that are, have more of a central memory phenotype that hang around for a while. And that's one of the areas of, of interest. And so after culturing those T cells, they're then simply centrifuged and uh, put in a bag and then reinfused into the patient like a transfusion. The T cells then proliferate and will go and bind to the target. So for example, in lymphoma, uh, the CAR Ts will be directed to the lymphoma cells. Uh, as soon as the CAR Ts bind on, you'll get activation of those T cells. So what happens is that the actual receptor has uh, three components. 
that's the gene that's inserted. It's got the target. So, for example, that the lymphoma, it might be CD19. Lymphoma, uh, myeloma, it might be BCMA. Then there's a transmembrane domain, which has uh, activation uh, molecules, which will activate the T cell. So, for example, it might be BB1 or CD28. And that will then stimulate that T cell. So you'll get engagement through the receptor, activation of the T cells. The T cells will then proliferate and then produce cytokines and be directly cytotoxic. And so you'll get killing of the cells. The beauty about CAR T cells is twofold. One, it's, you know, it's called a live drug because the T cells will not only bind onto the lymphoma, target uh, lymphocyte, it'll then disengage and then go and bind onto another. And we wrote a paper a few years ago called Serial Killers because they can kill you know, eight to 14 specific cells and you can get rapid tumor lysis. The second thing is, is that the T cells have a memory. So the T cells will stick around and we can measure them and they can last for a few weeks or a few months or even years and permanently. So if there is regrowth of the tumor, then just like a you've vaccinated the patient, you'll get regrowth and the T cells can then kill. And that's an area of, of real interest because uh, we want to optimize that balance between the good cytotoxicity as well as long-term persistence of these cells, which makes them really exciting because it can basically prevent the tumor for the rest of the life. So fascinating technology and to be honest, it is constantly developing. There is just so many papers looking at how we might modify all those different steps to optimise the T-cells. Extraordinary. The targeted nature of it is just uh, amazing. Who will benefit from this type of treatment, Miles? Well, it's already uh, approved for... Um, the first approval was for B acute lymphoblastic leukemia and for patients who are pediatric young adults that's for patients who have failed induction treatment and usually allogeneic transplant in some situations it can actually be used for a bridge to allogeneic transplant and it's potentially curative there is a, a cure rate that's any variable depending on the study and the group between 30 and 70% the second major indication was in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma for patients who either were transplant ineligible or patients who had relapsed after a bone marrow transplant. And that's currently been approved in Australia. There's two different companies that produce the T-cells. The third current indication that's been approved and we're waiting for the final implementation, which gets down to how do we fund all of this, but mantle cell lymphoma. So that's been approved in Australia, but not being used commercially yet, one would hope. And all of those targets are CD19. The big breakthrough has been in myeloma, where the CAR-T is targeted against anti-BCMA, uh, B-cell maturation antigen, which is localised on uh, mature plasma cells. And so that's just been approved with a big nudge in the ribs of the health minister to get the TGA to finally approve that. But it's yet to get the final approval through PBAC slash MSAC. It's a little bit unusual, the funding model.
the next cabs off the rank ultimately going to be other solid tumours, but there are problems with solid tumours and they may, may well be micro-environmental where there's lots of studies, but solid tumours are proving to be a bit more difficult than initially anticipated. Yes, perhaps we could talk a little bit more about that later. Um, one of my questions was, in terms of the infusion, is it is the infusion repeated or is it a just a one-off therapy? With the standard CAR-Ts, so the CAR-Ts are predominantly that CD4, CD8 population, and it's a one-off and long-term survival. But there are other types of lymphocytes that are being looked at and NK cells, uh, which are not typically long surviving. And so there are some strategies of, of using multiple infusions. The other interesting area is using allogeneic CAR-Ts, so a more off-the-shelf strategy. That's a big area and it's very tempting because the big problem we have with CAR-Ts is that, as I've explained to you, it's in, often in a relapse setting for lymphoma and getting the patients to get bulk reduction being able to collect their T cells, grow them in that period of time, and for them to disease to be in, in control for what works out to be a few weeks can be challenging. And so the idea of having a, a bank of uh, T cells um, that can be potentially matched with a whole lot of people and just be pulled off the shelf is really exciting. And there's a number of companies, lots of trials, um, and that may broaden the availability of it for patients. But there's nothing near a standard approach yet. So you've been working on genomics and personalised medicine for some time now. Overall, where do you think we stand today in terms of treatment for blood cancers? Yeah, look, I think genomics, you know, for this audience, they'll know that the key thing for genomics really has been around getting the right diagnosis. I mean, I use a genomic panel for myeloproliferative diseases literally every day trying to define, you know, myelofibrosis, et cetera. We use it for AML all the time to subtype. So it is splitting up and directing our treatment. So, you know, C-kit mutations, et cetera, NPN, we're using it all the time diagnostically. The next step really is to sort of say, is there a targeted therapies? And no question that targeted therapies are developing. So we have got uh, IDH inhibitors, for example, which are available for MDS and AML. There's C-kit inhibitors for mast cell diseases. So what we're going to see, I think, over the years is going to be a progressive increase in the repertoire of potentially targeted therapies for myeloid malignancies, lymphoid malignancies. So, for example, EZH2 is a common mutation seen in lymphoma. There's now EZH2 inhibitors. Uh, so I think we're just going to see this one used every day for diagnostics and two, for targeted choosing and specific targeted treatments for patients with across the board hematological malignancies. You mentioned that TGA has approved CAR-T therapy for multiple myeloma. This is the first time in Australia that a treatment has been approved for use against a common cancer. Can you explain what this TGA approval means? Yeah, so look, the first ones were for lymphoma was very much this situation of patients with relapse disease. So about 2,000 patients per year are diagnosed with diffuse large B cell, and we cure about 70% of them. For the patients who are eligible in terms of age, 
It makes it about 300 a year potentially if it catches on. There are issues of, you know, getting the patients to CAR T-cell therapy. So it's relatively small if you spread that number around Australia. Uh, and it also needs to be done pretty quickly. So myeloma is a different paradigm because from day one, the patients know that they've got an incurable disease. Uh, so in myeloma, it's been approved by the TGA for after third line therapy. So that means we can start looking at providing it, but it's not reimbursed. And the big problem here is that it's got to be approved by the PBAC as well as MSAC because the PBAC pay for the drug, which is about, well, we don't know the exact number, but it's about four hundred to $600,000 per patient. And that's got to be paid to the drug company to produce it. And then the patients actually have to be looked after in the hospital. And that means the states have to pay for that, which means MSAC kicks in. And so this is big political football in terms of who's been paying for it. And that's a bit where we're stuck at the moment. And the discussion I've been having and a number of the groups, including HSANZ and uh, Myeloma Scientific Advisory Group, have been arguing with the government about, you know, have they been making rational decisions about the funding? Because last year in August, MSAC rejected it really on very inappropriate, illogical reasons, reasoning that they did not use for the other indications. And it's because it's so expensive. At the current indication, it is about 270 patients per year. But if it moves closer and closer to diagnosis, then you're starting to look at you know, 2,700 patients a year are diagnosed with myeloma. So if it became second line, not fifth line, the numbers go up substantially. Now, you know, the costs will come down as everything does, but it at the moment looks like a very expensive strategy. The problem is, is that the government's not even preparing for it. They're not even thinking about you know, how they fund these things, how they can optimise it, how they can engage with pharma to perhaps even reduce the prices. So I'm fighting a bit of a political battle to try and get people to start recognising what I call the tsunami of immunotherapies that's coming over the horizon and for us to be at least prepared for this from a, a delivery point of view, people have to be trained as well as, a, as an economic point of view. You mentioned the, um, uh, the, the we're, in terms of funding, we're at the start of an innovation and of course it's expensive. So the expectation, presumably, is that, as you mentioned, it will go down uh, in cost. Is the government considering this in their funding proposals? Um, no, not really. And I think the, the other issue is, is that there's other technologies called bispecific antibodies, which is, you know, dual binding antibodies, which are given as a drug. And they're going to compete with CAR-Ts. They're very effective. They have different toxicity profiles, et cetera. But this whole landscape of where it's all going to fit in, competing technologies, reducing prices, and this is really what I'm arguing for, that we have something like a think tank that can feed into the government and start looking at these things. For example, we've had three drugs for myeloma approved in the United States three bispecific antibodies approved. And so we know they're going to be on the horizon in two years, but Australia's regulatory authorities, they don't get ready for it. And so it then delays all of this. Yes, I guess in uh, 
general terms, it's this disconnect between the political cycle and, I guess, the medical development cycle. Yeah, and look, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies do produce these drugs and they do cost the health system because people have to be trained and the processes are quite boutique and they should be contributing to the cost of those things. Yes. So, Miles, I just was wondering about side effects. We haven't talked about are there side effects to these treatments? There's two major things. One is cytotoxicity. So the cytokine release syndrome... So if these cells proliferate quickly, they produce large amount of cytokines, particularly interleukin-6, and you can get a real high fever septic type episode. Um, tocilizumab, the anti-IL-6 antibody with steroids works extremely well. And so we've got better and better at managing those um, toxicities. But then there's also uh, neurotoxicities that can occur, which are a little bit more complicated they, again, are generally manageable, but they actually may be more of a problem as we use these treatments, perhaps in older people or perhaps earlier when the immune system is really, you know, very active early in disease. And so neurotoxicity can take the shape of anything from tremor to uh, cognitive problems, pseudo strokes. Uh, and then there's a, a sort of a degenerative neurotoxicity that we're seeing quite rare and a lot of these are very manageable, but quite rare. And that may be more of an issue. And I don't think we've really nailed that more chronic neurotoxicity like sort of Parkinsonian type effects. So I don't want to overemphasize them, but like any developing technology, you know, things can take us from the side and unexpected. The other is particularly in lymphoma and myeloma where we're targeting B cells, we get hypogammaglobulinemia. So Patients often require immunoglobulin replacement and infections. I think not only with this, but with the biospecifics where we're knocking off large amounts of um, normal B cells in various compartments, blood, marrow, spleen, lymph glands, we're going to see issues with infection. And I think, you know, from the pathology perspective, we're creating an industry here of immune suppression. And it's not just that things that we've talked about, but all of the antibodies and all of the new immune therapies, we have to be prepared for the for the infection problems that we may well face. Yes, thank you. And of course, there's side effects with all the oncology treatments. So an uh, exciting thought I, I had it in terms of uh, other cancers. I mean, can this technology be applied to other cancers, particularly solid cancers sometime in the future? Well, I think it's um, anything where a T cell is important. And so, you know, we've learned from the checkpoint inhibitors that there's a lot of cancers that are very dependent on the um, T cells. You know, we, we're using checkpoint inhibitors for bladder cancer, lung cancer, et cetera. So um, there's an, a lot of trials that are being done. The most predominant ones have been in lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, Ovarian cancer is, looks very interesting. I, I personally think that that's an interesting one because, you know, advanced ovarian cancer, often peritoneal, and they can be targeted. So the problem has been that getting these cells in to a what is a relatively hostile microenvironment as opposed to the marrow components, which are a bit more accepting of T cells. They're used to having T cells floating around in there. Uh, that's being a challenge. Other conditions... 
rheumatological conditions targeting T cells or even some um, viral conditions targeting T cells, infectious conditions, um, have, and diseases like diabetes um, have been uh, uh, act, under active investigation uh, where the T cells, you know, out of control T cells seem to be important. So it's, it's going to go beyond just cancer. Is it, and where is it being worked on in the world? There must be other centres working on this therapy. Yeah, look, there was a nice publication last year looking at where all the trials are. And if you look at where all the trials are, they are actually in the US and China. Uh, there's a massive amount of research being done in China, but it's predominantly US. Um, there's obviously some in Europe. We're doing, you know, Australia is, is doing a number of really interesting preclinical work, uh, particularly in some of the uh, neurological conditions, CNS disease, but the most of the clinical trials are coming out of the US. So um, you mentioned before the uh, Australia being ready for the use of this technology, particularly with funding. Have you got any other comments about us being ready? I think the problem is, is that the departments of health really don't understand what's happening on the horizon. And I think they need to be educated. So just like we have, you know, the Grattan Institute and the Lowy Institute, you know, educating about financial issues, really educating the government, providing formats for which people can talk, debate, bring up the issues, we need to, to have something similar. And there is currently a high technology assessment review, and they've already commented that they need something that's horizon gazing to look at all of these high technology treatments and they include even some of the enzyme replacement therapies, et cetera. Uh, we, talk, we were talking about genetic issues, uh, the whole area, you know, of where there are gene deficiencies. And they're all expensive. So we need something horizon gazing. But, you know, my concern is if it's buried within the departments of health, then they're subject to limitation of, of funding, et cetera. We need something bigger and something that can really address all the issues which go across the departments, including industry, because Australia has a huge opportunity here to become, to you know, sovereignly produce. That's one of my arguments: is that we are very dependent on overseas uh, production, where we have to literally send these cells to somewhere overseas, and so we're fighting to have places like Peter Mac to do more production. But you know, we have a great immunology, you know, history here in Australia. And, you know, places like CSL are very capable of being production, you know, contributing to the capacity to produce. So I think there's there's real opportunities. Um, and eventually this sort of treatment will become small scale. We'll have little incubator boxes in hospitals. We, you know, we've got a lab at Epworth where we've built specifically in anticipation for taking these this sort of technology and for it not to be needing to be done in large clean rooms, but to be done in, in small incubators uh, like, you know, pharmaceutical production, which is, you know, really where I see it going. And as you said, it needs funding to get to that point. Yeah, it needs to be evaluated what, what it is and then work out the funding. So everything considered, it sounds like a very exciting time to be a haematologist. What would you say to someone who hasn't perhaps considered this as a career choice? Look, I think, um, you know, the beauty about haematology is that, you know, the balance between um, the clinical and the laboratory and then the research. And as my 
daughters would say it's a pretty awesome time to be haematologist because we are really striving forward at the cutting edge. So um, I think we're just going to cure more and more people. We're going to be faced with more challenges. We've got a lot of translational research happening, and uh, it's certainly going to be a huge change in the next 20 years. So for any young person who wants to, who's interested in, in looking after patients over a long period of time and uh, managing them and being involved with both the clinical and the pathology side of things, haematology is fascinating. Thanks, Miles, and thanks for talking with us today. Um, CAR T-cell therapy is such an exciting technology and uh, it's got extraordinary potential. I think anyone listening to this podcast will be able to see that. It's been wonderful to explore this therapy with you today. Thank you. Thanks very much, Laurie. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA president, Dr. Laurie Bott. To learn more about pathology, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.